Last week we were blessed to have Jim Foote visiting us from Tumen, Siberia, and he shared with us a little bit about the Great Commission, as it is called, which we read here this morning as our unison scripture reading, and he talked about how we would be destined to fail in our fulfillment of it were it not for those words of promise that Christ has for us at the end of that great commission. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And so we see two things in that. One is that the great commission was not just for the disciples, for he did not say, I will be with you for the rest of your lives, and then that's it. But no, he says always, till the end of the age, to the end of all time, I will be with you. And so we see that this great commission, if you will, is not just for the apostles, but for those who would follow in their teaching, for those who would be members of the true church, who would walk in that faith which was handed down once for all time from the apostles. We also see, though, that this great commission can be fulfilled only because it is the power of God that fulfills it. It's reiterated, as Randy mentioned before, prayed for, told first here in Matthew, but then in Acts chapter 1, at the ascension of Christ Jesus, we read about this promise, this guarantee, this commission, if you will, being reiterated in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. And this passage serves as our sermon text for today. So follow along as I read, remembering that this is indeed the inspired word of God. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises contained therein. Even when they are challenging to our ears and to our hearts, we thank you for the message contained in its words. For your word is truly living and active, and it, through your power, transforms us conforming us to your likeness. We pray that that indeed would be the case here this morning. Speak through your word to us. Help us to see you and to know you 
not just coincidentally, not just uh, in an academic way, but in a personal, relational way as our Lord and Savior. For it is in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. When you were kids, if you were anything like me, your teacher probably told you in school, there are no bad questions. Now, if you were like me, you also knew intuitively that this just wasn't quite right. <laughs> After all, there, there are bad questions, aren't there? I'm thinking of one time I, I asked somebody, do you know what time it is? And they responded, right now? That's a bad question. Of course, right now. I, I'm not asking what time it is later. I, if I ask what time it is, it's obvious I'm talking about right now. My wife, Erin, tell, tells a story of a time when she worked at a uh, children's science museum. And it had three stories in it. And she was by the staircase at one time, and somebody came up to her, and they asked her, do these stairs go up? <laughs> Bad question. <laughs> now, oftentimes, we, we ask bad questions, usually just because, because we're not really thinking about what we're asking. We're not, we're not just really connecting the words with the thoughts, with what we're really wanting to find out. And there's just kind of a, a mix-up along the way there, and... And, and I wish I could say that that was the case for the disciples here. But I don't think that's the case. I think they asked a bad question because they just didn't understand. And honestly, if we look at ourselves, oftentimes we're the same way. Oftentimes we lack that understanding as well. John Calvin puts it this way in talking about this passage and what it says about the apostles. He says that this passage shows that the apostles were gathered together when, as this question was moved, that we may know that it came not of the foolishness of one or two that it was moved, but it was moved by a common consent of them all, but marvelous in their rudeness, that when, as they had been diligently instructed by the space of three whole years, they betray no less ignorance than if they had heard never a word. There are as many errors in this question as words. Yikes, that's kind of strong words. But the disciples had problems here. They had problems in this and they asked a bad question and it betrayed in their case the fact that they were concerned with all the wrong things. And we are very much like the disciples in that. We even often concern ourselves with the same wrong things with which they were concerned. The first of these is the restoration of the wrong kingdom. We see in verse 6, they came together and asked him this question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's important for us to have at least a little bit of a knowledge of Israel's history at this point. Uh, Israel uh, had been um, called out by the Lord as a peculiar people, a people to be separate, to be different, to be other. And yet we read in the annals of their history that they longed to have a king. Why? So that they could be like all the other nations. And we see a problem there, don't we? That, that there'd be this desire. Ultimately, ultimately God relents and, 
and gives them Saul and beyond him David and Solomon. And David and Solomon ruled mightily over the kingdom. And during this time the kingdom was truly a glorious thing in that uh, it was strong, it was powerful, it was a source of, of nationalistic pride for Israel. This kingdom that they had with their mighty king reigning. Well, here we are a thousand years later and the disciples are asking Jesus, is now going to be the time we return to the good old days? The way it used to be when everything was great. Are we going back there now? Are you going to make that happen now, Jesus? Is now the time? We know it must be the case that that's where we want to go. Are you going to make it happen? The problem is their concern is for the wrong kingdom. Their concern is for a geopolitical kingdom. One that existed as they had understood it before then. Notice how Jesus answers. It's interesting. There's kind of two parts to their question. Actually, we miss it a little bit. It says, is now the time that you'll restore the kingdom? There's the question of whether the kingdom's going to be restored, but that's really not even a question for them. They just kind of assume that as a reality. And they say, is now the time? That it's going to happen. That's really what their question is. And that's why Jesus answers in terms of time. One thing we want to note. He doesn't say there will be no kingdom. You guys are totally off base. Because there is a kingdom that is coming. That will be a physical kingdom. There is a kingdom that will envelop all the earth. Note in 11 verse 11 part B. The second part of that. How it says the angel said that Jesus was taken up, but he will come in the same way as you saw him go to heaven. He will return. There will be a day when Jesus physically returns and there will be a new heavens and a new earth populated by the new Jerusalem, which the book of Revelation tells us will descend down out of heaven. And we will exist with him forever in this physical kingdom. It is coming. It will happen. But that's not what they were concerned with. And so Jesus answers and tells them that this whole time thing is another matter. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Their thoughts on the kingdom were that it would be this kingdom of Israel. That Their minds were very narrow and that they were just thinking about Israel, but the reality was Jesus' mind is far broader than this. He was not thinking just of Israel, and frankly, the plan of God was never to be focused just on Israel. In verse 8, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. And, and to what end? That you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem and Judea, yes, but also in Samaria. And even to the ends of the earth. Now, now this must have seemed odd to them. It must have seemed odd. But as I said before, this was the purpose all along. Remember what Adam was told in the garden. He, he was created before the fall. He's in the garden. He is told that his job, his task, is to fill the earth and subdue it. It is a worldwide plan 
that is his. And then even later, after the fall, as Abraham is called out by God, what is he told? He is promised, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And if we stopped right there, we'd think, see, this plan is focused just on this nationalistic Israel. But God goes on from there and says to him, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God's plan has always been bigger than Israel. And so it was that Abraham was called for a purpose. And Jesus is telling the disciples that they too are called for a purpose like Abraham. And that purpose is that his kingdom might be manifested through them in the entire world. That it might go out into the lands to which God had called them. And as I thought about this this week, I thought, well, what if Jesus was talking to us this morning? What if instead of those 11 disciples, he was talking to us? What, what would he be saying to us? And I think that perhaps he would want to say to us, much as he said to them, this idea that their kingdom that they were thinking about was the wrong kingdom. Oftentimes we think of the United States, the country in which we live, and of how perhaps in a day gone by it was so much better. If only it would be like it used to be, then everything would be great. Jesus, is now the time that you're going to restore the United States and make it once what it once was? And, and if only you do that, then everything will be good. Sometimes we think in that way, don't we? Don't we? We think back when I was a kid or back in such and such an era. And there's a couple of problems with that. One is it kind of forgets the fact very conveniently that, you know, there were bad politicians then and there were bad people then and there was crime then and there were sins then and there were all kinds of bad stuff happening then. We tend to have kind of a, a golden age nostalgia type mindset about the past. But even if it was better, I'm not saying it wasn't, but even if it was, the fact remains that how ethical or how nice or how comfortable we are in our existence here in the United States, that is not where our ultimate citizenship lies. We're told in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is where our ultimate allegiance lies. That is where our ultimate citizenship is. And we are right to be concerned about the welfare of our, our region or our city or our nation even. That is a right thing. Uh, we, we consider the exiles and the word of God through the prophet Jeremiah to them when, when he told them in Jeremiah 29, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So it is right that we would want Flint to be doing well and we would seek its welfare. It is right that we would want America to be doing well and we would seek its welfare. And so we should be actively hoping for that. We should be praying for that. We should be actively involved with, with uh, government and, and different community things. We should be involved with those absolutely. I'm not denying that in any way, but we should be involved in those things, realizing that we are exiles placed here, and our ultimate citizenship 
is not of this kingdom, but of the kingdom of heaven. That is the kingdom with which we ought to be most concerned. And I am convinced that script by scripture that, that God would want us to be more concerned with his kingdom purposes than we are with our personal comfort. And I think that's what Jesus would tell us if it were us that he was speaking to instead of the disciples there. We should be concerned with his kingdom, not just in terms of what his kingdom is doing here within our four walls as well. The church is not just to exist for the sake of the people who are gathered here on this morning. We should not just be concerned with our survival and our self uh, perpetuation, if you will. We should be concerned with other things. We should be more forward-focused, not always concerned about what lies behind us. And we should be more outward-focused, not just concerned with ourselves, but with those around us. For God has placed us in this community for a reason. It's not a, a coincidence that he has placed us here. He has placed us here for his purposes, that, that through us he might do a work here. And so it is that, that I think that we truly ought to, as William Carey, the great missionary, put it, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. We should dream big. And then we should pray hard. And then we should work to those ends. And through it all, we should trust God. That is what we need to do. And again, not just for ourselves, but, but for others as well. We need to seek out opportunities, for instance, to partner with other churches, with other, other bodies of believers in our community, working toward common goals for the kingdom of Christ Jesus. And we need to be thinking in terms of other things, you know, so, some of the things that have been on my heart recently that I've been praying about, that I've been dreaming about, that I'd love to see us as a church just really get behind. And these are, these are things that, that right now are hard to imagine. Frankly, they're hard to picture because we're, we're kind of a small church and we don't have a whole lot of resources and, and we don't have a whole lot of influence on the world right now. But, but these are the kind of things that I'm thinking about, that I'm dreaming about, that I'm praying about, hoping for. I, I would love us to see, uh, be a church that, that is producing, that is training, that is raising up missionaries and pastors and church leaders and people who are not just leading in that way, but but also people who are, are leading by being faithful Christians in their secular jobs, whether it be a, a, a job in the automotive industry or a government job or, or whatever it happens to be. Let us all lead by example, being faithful in those ways. I'd love to see us. This is a big dream of mine. I, I firmly am convinced that the the best way that we can reach people for Christ is through the planting of churches. This has been kind of the philosophy of our missions uh, board is, is that we want to support people who are planting churches. And so when missionaries come to us, that, that's kind of where our first Im influence is, is in that direction. But if that is the case, if we can best reach people by planting churches, 
and we desire to reach people in our community, in the broader Genesee County area, let's say, then shouldn't it be on our hearts, shouldn't it be a desire of ours to plant churches in this community? Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if, if we were to plant a church in Swartz Creek, or we were to plant a church in Grand Blank, or we were to plant a church in Mount Morris, or wherever, if we were to do that? You know what it might involve? It might involve taking some of the people who are here and moving to that new church. And that would be a sacrifice. It would be a sacrifice for them, those who left. It would be a sacrifice for us to lose them. But you see, it's not all about us and what we want. It's about reaching people for the gospel. And so I pray that we could do that one day. We can't do that right now. We're not able to do that today. But we can do that one day. And we can do it one day because it's not up to our ability and our power, but it's the power of God that will make this happen. And God is able. He is able. It won't just happen. We need to trust him. And we would need everybody to get on board. We would need to pray toward that end. We'd need to commit ourselves to goals like that. But God can make them happen. We need to have everybody seeking how we might be used of God in the context of his kingdom work. Unfortunately, we, like the disciples, instead of concerning ourselves with this, often concern ourselves, like I said, with the wrong things, with the restoration of the wrong kingdom, and sometimes with the acquisition of the wrong knowledge. Now, knowledge is a good thing. We, we want to learn things. We want to know things. That's good. It's right that we would have an inquisitive nature that wants to learn, but knowledge for knowledge's sake is not a great thing. In verse 7, Jesus says to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. As we mentioned before, this weekend marks the beginning of fall. It's a new season, if you will. Uh, We can be sure that here in Michigan, in fall, the weather is going to turn cooler. Leaves are going to change color, then they're going to fall off the trees. We can be sure of this because it is a season. It is a regular season that we know God has set that season. That is not the kind of season that Jesus is talking about that is not for us to know. We're aware of that because God has set that. What he's talking about specifically is time such as the time at which he would return. It's interesting. We, we have a hunger for this kind of knowledge. We just want to know about the future. All of us kind of have something in us, I think, that points us in that direction. You remember Harold Camping, who back in 1994, or the very beginning of the year, wrote a book called 1994, question mark, suggesting that Jesus was going to return in 1994 and, and uh, that we all needed to get ready for that. And, and he was going to return then. And as the year went on, it got longer and longer, and all of a sudden it was 1995, he hadn't returned. Well, that's a problem if you said he was going to return in 1994. But Harold Camping was undaunted because, you'll remember a few years ago, he said May 21st, 2011, that's the day Jesus is going to return. Uh, May 21st, 2011 came and passed. (laughs) And he said, well, there was a spiritual judgment that occurred on that day. It's actually October 21st, 2011, that he's going to come. Well, October 21st came and passed. (laughs) 
And then finally, I read this actually in March of the following year, 2012. Uh, Harold Camping got something right. He said that his attempt to predict such a date was sinful, that he ought not to have done it. And he sought the forgiveness of others. He got that right. Because Jesus is very clear about it. He says in Matthew 24, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So for us to try to set those types of dates is just foolish. And yet there's a hunger in us to know, isn't there? Don't we want to know about the future? That, that's why you'll see so many things. I get mailings all the time for prophecy conferences, um, and, and there's just a real interest in that among people. But even in non-Christian circles, you see pe- people go to uh, their horoscope, right? They read their horoscope because they want to know what's going to happen. They, they go to uh, a psychic or call a psychic to get their future. They want to know about the future. There's something in us that longs for this. We want, want to know what the future has to say. But God tells us in Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. We must be content to let those secret things be secret things. If the Lord has not revealed it to us, it is not for us to know. He is not keeping things from us because he wants to torment us, but because he has deemed it in his infinite wisdom to be best for his glory and our good that we not know those things. And so we should be content with that. Sometimes we seek knowledge just for the sake of having kind of trivial knowledge. I I love to play the game Trivial Pursuit. Uh, If you've ever played it, uh, my family, uh, we'd have knockdown, drag out Trivial Pursuit battles at family reunions. It was uh, was just kind of cutthroat. And we, we have a bunch of people in my family who love trivia, just these these little facts that really don't do anything for you, but it's just, you can look smart if you know them. Uh, you know, that, that's kind of the whole reason you know that stuff, is you can kind of show off. Well, we, we shouldn't seek knowledge for that reason, just so you can look smart, just so you can know these facts. What does Paul say? What does Paul say to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2? He says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. And him crucified. That is what we need to know. We need to know that Christ was crucified for our sins. We need to know that he is risen from the dead. We need to know that we have salvation in him alone. That is what we need to know. That is the knowledge that we should long to acquire. And we should be content with not knowing the rest. Knowing that God loves us and is in control. Like I said earlier, we're going to look at Ruth this fall. The book of Ruth is a great example that points us to this fact that God is in control even when everything seems to be absolutely terrible. When it's all going in the wrong direction. When it seems that God has completely forsaken us. Even then, we are in his hands. In his tender, loving care. He is looking after us. And he holds the future in his hands as well. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purposes. You see, the book of Revelation is a really popular book because it tells us about the future. It's really hard to understand, though. 
But really, it's not that hard to understand. I can give you a synopsis of the book of Revelation that explains it perfectly. It's two words long. Jesus wins. That's what the book of Revelation is about. It's to give people comfort and confidence that in the end, Jesus wins. And that no matter what persecutions you might be facing, in the end, Jesus wins. No matter what trials or sickness or pain or broken relationships you might be experiencing, in the end, Jesus wins. And if we are found joined together with him through faith, then we get to share in the spoils of that victory. What a joyful, wonderful promise that is. And so we should worship him. But we need to worship him as he desires to be worshipped. The the Bible tells us that, that we need to worship God as he wants to be worshipped, not just as we want to worship him. We are to worship him, Jesus says, in spirit and in truth. It's interesting, in the book of Amos, God says to those who are worshiping him, at least in their mind, that's what they're doing, through all the proper rituals and through all the proper ways that they're supposed to be going about it, it seems. He says in Amos 5, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps, I will not listen to. He says, you're doing all the right things, perhaps, but I don't enjoy them at all. Why? because they don't heed this next verse, verse 24. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You see, we need to worship God. We need to worship him rightly. And part of worshiping him rightly is being moved to action. It can't be something that we just do in this moment for this one hour. For if we are only worshiping in one hour on Sunday morning, then that is not true worship. It has to affect the rest of our lives. That's why I say here the, the disciples had you know, concerned themselves with the assumption of the wrong posture here. It says that the angel, as they were looking on, uh, says to them, well actually before that in verse 9, it says, when he had said these things, they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. This cloud, we need to understand, I don't have time to run through all of these verses, but, but we, we could look at Exodus 13, 21, 1 Kings 8, verse 10 and 11, Isaiah 19, verse 1, Luke 21, verse 27. All these are verses that talk about clouds, but in each of them, it's not talking about clouds just as some meteorological phenomenon. They all refer to these clouds that exist that point us to the glory of God. That's how the glory of God is beheld, as if a cloud, whether it be in the wilderness as God for 40 years led the people as a pillar of cloud, or whether it be the cloud that filled the temple with his presence, or whether it be the cloud 
out of which he spoke at the transfiguration of Christ, saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So now we see that Jesus was risen up into a cloud. We are to understand that this is just not your regular cumulus, nimbus, cirrus, stratus type cloud. This cloud into which he is taken is the very glory of God. And so it is, on one hand, very understandable that these disciples would kind of stand gawking, gazing at this as they see. I mean, it's not every day you see a person just lifted up into the sky and then vanish into the glory of God. And yet, note here what happens. In verse 10, they were gazing into heaven. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, men of Galilee, these are angels that are speaking to them. They say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? See, I think that this is not just a question. This is one of those questions like, like a parent might ask their child, is your room clean? You know, they're not just looking for information, right? If your room's not clean, there's kind of a, a, an inference there that you're supposed to go clean it. And so they ask these men, why are you looking up, gazing into the heavens? And they're saying, you shouldn't be doing that right now. Why shouldn't they be gazing into the heavens? Why? Because they've been given marching orders. Jesus didn't say, you should stand here and just gaze into the heavens, gaze upon my glory and just stand here and be overwhelmed by that. No, he said, go. Go, I am sending you. Go and make disciples of all nations. You will be my witnesses, even to the end of the earth. That is what he had told them. And we have heard the gospel, we who are here, because they were ultimately faithful to that command. They ultimately did take that message. And so it is that there's a word of instruction for us here. It's right for us to look unto Jesus. In fact, we're told to do just that in Hebrews 12, verse 2. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, we're told. But we must remember that that's in the context of verse 1 of Hebrews 12. Which has told us that we're to do that while we're running with endurance the race that is set before us. It is great to gather here on Sunday mornings. It's a wonderful thing that we gather and behold the glory of God. That we gaze into the heavens, if you will. That is a wonderful thing. But I wonder what if those two angels appeared here they would say to us. And I can't help but think that they might say, men and women of Genesee County, why do you stand looking into heaven? You see, for it's not merely enough for us to just behold the glory of God. We should not just be hearers of God's word, but doers of it. And what things exactly should we be doing? Well, first of all, we should be sharing the gospel with others. We all fall short in this area, myself included. We do not look for the opportunities to share the truth of the gospel like we should. 
We do not seek out those opportunities as aggressively as we should. But we should. So let us do that. But let us not only lead people to Jesus, let us do those things I talked about before. Let's train up and raise up ministry leaders. Let's plant churches. Let us be about the work of the kingdom of God to his glory, that his glory might be beheld by all. Again, not by our own power, but by his. For we see in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. God's plan is that God's power would reside in God's people for God's purpose. Let me say that again. God's plan is that God's power would reside in God's people for God's purpose. What a wonderful truth. What a wonderful blessing. Let us be about God's work. Let us be about mission work. Let us not be just a church that is content to just sit here and be concerned about ourselves. Let us be concerned about the larger community. Let us be concerned about our nation and the borders beyond that. Let us be concerned about the ends of the earth so that the day could come when people from every tribe and every tongue, every people group would rejoice and call on the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Our Father, we do long for that day. Tarry not, we pray. Come quickly, but in the meantime, move us to be about your work. We ask it in Jesus' name.